0: This should definitely go in. Got the cat going, yeah. Everything. This has like um, strong Twitter Spaces vibes.
1: <laughs> well, I think it's uh, it's a little more um, it's a little more professional than we used to do on Twitter Spaces. Not that much more professional, but a little bit more. It, it had its charm, to be honest. It had its charm. It did, and I kind of liked. let let's talk about it for a second. I I kind of liked it because. There was a couple of really unique features of it that I thought were really quite strong, which is it had that network effect. As soon as uh, there were advantages and disadvantages to, to, to this, as soon as you went to even enter a Twitter Spaces, p- people would start joining because it would pop up at the top of their timelines, yeah, um, and they'd just come in. Now the, the the disadvantage of that is that you couldn't set up your Your uh, space before people started joining, which was always a little bit like, oh, it's all just like happening all at once. Um, But the advantage of it was that you instantly got people coming in and listening and interacting, and that was that was good. Very, very different to you know a podcast. But yeah, I I thought it was a it was a good service. Yeah, I really liked the
0: um, casualness of it. You know, you're sort of easing into it, and it's almost like. As a listener, you're uh, there's a there's an open door and there's some people fiddling around with microphones and they're sort of doing their thing and you check out oh okay it says uh, Swift package indexing might be interesting I'll just I'll just wander in sit down and and see what's going on and uh, I really like the appeal of it yeah I also noticed when we started not doing it live it felt a bit weird initially because. I don't know how to describe it. When we sat down for the Twitter Spaces and even though there weren't many people, there were some people and I felt like, you know, we weren't just talking to each other, but there were other people listening that I was sort of in my mind addressing. And, and that changed perspective slightly, ever so slightly. And yeah, um, I think that has settled down a bit. So I, I was sort of conjuring up a virtual audience in my head now. As, as it's just the two of us talking, but <laughs> it, it was a very interesting, subtle difference in, in how you sit down and, and chat. Yeah. And if you told me beforehand we'd be doing a live recording, that would have probably, well, that would have certainly stressed me out more than it actually did when we sat down and did it. We someday, you know, at some point, I don't remember how it came to be, we decided we well, were just going to try and do this. And we sat down, connected and chatted and there was no nervousness or weirdness about it really it it was quite bizarre how it happened and how it tended to be a really interesting experiment for the time um that it
1: lasted you're right and i think i think that the casualness of it is its is its strength or or, or was it strength yeah. depending on <laughs> i actually switched to the spaces tab on the twitter twitter the other day and nothing loaded so maybe it's no longer but um uh but that definitely was its its strength of just like well you can just you don't have to make this into a big deal. You can just open up a space and start talking and people can start listening. And the other really nice thing about the UI is it showed the people. So in when it showed you a space at the top of your timeline, the icons of the profile pictures that were in the, the space icon were the people who you followed who were in that space yeah and so you could recognize people you knew that were listening to something and that's a really great way to get people to
0: yeah i, I love that i i really like to see you know familiar faces like literally faces <laughs> pop up in the in the ui yeah i do wonder i mean mastodon which you know is where i've moved to is interesting in many ways and one of the ways um it is quite interesting apart from you know just being a, a microblogging blogging service uh, similar to uh, twitter um it has these other um social networks powered by the underlying protocol activity pub um like an instagram like um picture sharing that's called PixelFed, is it yeah exactly and also a youtube um, like um, video sharing thing and there's also something about podcasting and I, I'm, I've been meaning to explore this a little further because I do, I do suspect there is something that could work a little bit like a Twitter space with audio, perhaps also with video. Um, I, we certainly would you know, it wouldn't have the client side integration yet quite like Twitter used to have, but I'm... Uh-huh. It feels like there's something there that could be hooked into, and perhaps with a little glue or webpage or something could be made to work, a little bit like it. Or maybe maybe there's even more than I imagine there being um, already. It's I think it, it's worth might be worth having a bit of a look. Or if someone listening or knows more, I'd be really interested to hear um, what the options are. I, I do know there's some there's some podcasting stuff that is based on Activity Pub available already. Um, I just haven't had time to look into that.
1: Sounds like some non-coding work, Um, and talking of non-coding work, um, that's exactly what I've been doing over the last uh, few days. You may or may not know that there is a a legal entity behind the Swift Package Index project, Um, and it's a company we set up because we needed a legal entity, actually, originally for a... um, Apple developer account. And that was the that was the thing that pushed us over the the, the edge into setting up a, a legal entity because we needed to register for an Apple developer account so that we could sign package collections. That was the um, that was the initial event that made it happen. Um, but that is is growing up a little bit as of this week, which um, it now has uh, a bank account, which it hasn't had so far because uh, we've been dealing with the money just kind of without. We really didn't want to start up the whole accounting process for that company, uh, so we've been dealing with sponsorship money kind of outside of that legal entity at the moment. But it's time for the project to grow up a little bit, and creating a legal entity was one part of growing up, and giving that legal entity a, its own bank account is is another part of growing up. And it feels like it feels like we're we've coming, we're coming out of the toddler years and into the uh, small child years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um going up to well, it's like year 3, right? We yeah, in April it'll be 3 years. So, yeah, it's um we're getting there.
1: <laughs> it, it is, and it's also probably worth just talking a little bit about um about the the kind of finances of uh of of what we do here. Um so we are currently supported by um two uh, mechanisms. We have GitHub sponsors and If you are already a GitHub sponsor, then thank you so much for that support. It's literally invaluable uh, to us. Um, uh, And that's organized through obviously GitHub's uh, sponsorship system. There are many open source sponsorship systems around there, but we picked uh, picked GitHub to run ours. And then we also have a couple of adverts on the site from uh, Stream who write a chat uh, SDK. So you can add kind of real-time um, chat to your applications um, and Emerge who run several tools actually that will help you slim down your applications, uh, optimize startup time for your applications and various other things around kind of optimizing what you ship to the app store. Um, and so again I think it's, it's worth us uh, we haven't mentioned our sponsors uh, so far on the podcast and I'm not sure we'll do it every single time but given we're talking about this kind of stuff, this company stuff. Um, I thought it was nice to uh uh to to give them a quick mention. And you really would help us out if you if you haven't heard of either of those companies, nip to the Swift Package next page and they've both got links on uh, the homepage there. Um so yeah, so with, that's our primary source of kind of income for it. Um we also have financial help in a different way from Companies who support the hosting of the Package Index. Yeah. Uh, so we have um, our main hosting, um, where the website runs um, and where all of our Linux analysis and build processes run, is provided by Microsoft Azure. Um, very, I mean, it's, it's always a pleasure to work with both of our hosting providers, Microsoft. When we when we approached them, they couldn't do enough uh, for us. They were fantastic and. That they were actually the second hosting providers to come on board originally. Um, Mac Stadium were our hosting uh, provider, and they remain our hosting provider for our Mac, um, iOS, watchOS, and tvOS build infrastructure. So, uh, and again, it's such a pleasure working with both of those companies. They, their only questions are, how can we help? That's basically uh, how I describe those relationships, and, and, uh, we couldn't do this project without their help because we <laughs> the the amount of hosting going out on one side and the amount of income from sponsors and advertising on the other side they don't add up <laughs> no those those numbers don't line up no unfortunately and and we
0: we should say i mean this is um uh, more or less a a full-time project for the both of us you know the the income that we have is is really nice and we do appreciate it a lot um it wouldn't it wouldn't support the hosting costs that we have. It also doesn't, um, as of yet, uh, support our actual time investment. Um, so um, th- that does help us a lot, but don't don't take away from us opening a bank account that we're, <laughs> we're overflowing with funds or anything. <laughs> That's not quite <laughs> the, the case. But um,
1: <laughs> we're not we're not getting into uh, investments with all our <laughs> funds.
0: <laughs> no, but it is really great, um, especially also the individual uh, GitHub supporters. It's always great. Every week we update the, um, the, uh, the list of sponsors. You know, like on, the, on our homepage, you see the little um, GitHub avatars, and they shuffle around as you refresh the page. And every week we update um, to the latest list, and it's great to see when there are new faces uh, appearing in the list of sponsors. Um, and if you feel like you want to be in that list, don't, uh, don't hold back. We, we do appreciate it a lot.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and I do think it's nice to just kind of step back up from things a little bit and and look at um, obviously how far we've come with the actual project, but how far we've come with making this into something that we hope will be here for a very long time uh, and providing the service that it provides and more uh, for many, many years to come. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right.
0: Um, do we have some techie news to talk about as well? I think we have Docsi uploading news, right? That is right. Yes. So the doc um, uploaded that um, we talked about um, last time is actually live now, um, and it was it it was pretty much done for quite a number of weeks now, and I was tweaking it a little, trying to tune it a little, um, uh, mainly around the difficulties of trying to get this whole process to finish and to run within the fifteen minute um, AWS Lambda hard cutoff so there's a 15 minute timeout a runtime budget that you that you get and after that the lambda is killed and in all my testing there has never been a problem with the largest um doc uh, set that we have and that sort of spawned this whole thing but yet i was caught out at the last minute with a surprise with respect to performance because my testing that i've done pretty much almost all of it i have done with the um arm 64 lambda the graviton 2 processor node on on aws and that's purely because the turnaround for testing was was easy for me to deploy it from an arm mac directly to uh, an arm binary into that lambda i did test initially i did compare the x86 and the um, arm 64 performance at least in one aspect and that was the unzipping of the file and that took like around 40 seconds on the ARM 64, it was a couple of seconds faster on the x86, and that sort of gave me confidence that they would be operating at the same level of performance. And then I just, you know, subsequently focused on trying to get the um, the test one, so the ARM 64 Graviton based one, to you know run as fast as, as possible to stay within our 15 minute window, and that worked fine. So the ARM one consistently ran uh, in around 11 minutes um, in all my testing without our largest um, doc set. Now, when all of this was done, we debated whether we should deploy the production version as an ARM64 or an x86 variant. And ultimately we decided to go with the x86 variant because I had already set up an um, auto deployment GitHub action. Um, that would, you know, allow us to just tag a version and that would then auto deploy into an AWS Lambda. So there would be no blessed developer machine setup uh, be required to deploy into that Lambda. Literally just tagging the thing would would do it all from there. I toyed with the idea of making that process ARM-based, but the problem is GitHub Actions. So the GitHub runners, there aren't any ARM64 runners. So the only option really would have been to set up our own um, hosted runner, which isn't a huge deal, but at that point, given for how, you know, how often we actually plan to change that Lambda, if you set up a GitHub dedicated runner, you probably might as well just have it on, you know, one of our or both of our machines to do it ad hoc whenever needed, because, you know, one environment would have to maintain anyway, so it might as well be one that's not as removed um, because we would have to pick one of our, Uh, Max Stadium machines to host that as well and you know it's just it's just a bit weird and awkward to set that up in parallel so that's why we arrived we said all right let's let's use x86 to deploy (laughs) and then the funny thing happened we were all set I tagged the thing gave it a final test and it timed out so the x86 runner actually took more than 15 minutes to to finish and it did that consistently like it, it did not finish within the time interval and I was really stumped because in my early testing I'd actually expected that to be slightly faster. And the weird thing is the part that is, you'd expect to be compute bound, which is the unzipping was as fast or maybe even slightly faster than the ARM64 version, but all the networking stuff happening after that, like the transfer of the unzipped files, the 70,000 files of, of one gigabyte in total into S3, actually took way, way longer With the x86 variant now i i guess that's not architecture related perhaps it's where these things run so i'm 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 guessing i have no idea but it looks to me like in this case at least in this case well a in this case it's very obvious that the x86 lambda you know takes probably around 40 percent longer than the arm 64 variant to the to the degree that it wasn't actually usable for us so that took the decision out of the picture to actually use GitHub actions to deploy it um, and we now ended up you know doing what we um, debated doing earlier and it's just deploy straight from a from our dev machines into the production environment but what's really bizarre is that the x86 takes so much longer i guess in the in the network traffic i, I found it really weird but that's where we arrived so that was a that was a lesson learned <laughs> for, for sure I thought I tested the performance aspects that are going to be the critical ones, and, and yet, um, yeah, there was a surprise there.
1: Yeah, and to step back slightly from the, the kind of nitty-gritty of, of executing these, we do have a fairly significant problem with the size of these archives, and we are talking to the documentation, uh, the DocC documentation uh, team about, so we're both members of the documentation work group that Apple set up, um, and we have raised um, uh, a couple of times, and I know that it's kind of on the list of things to look at, Swift syntax is the, is the main problematic package that we have, that we've been using as our, as our test case, isn't it Sven? Yeah, it is. Um, so, there's certainly not a gigabyte's worth of actual type That's documentation it. or source code in that package um and so it, it kind of the current output of Doxy, um is significantly larger than hopefully it needs to be at some point and so it feels like we are right on the edge of this just being possible right now and i hope that that size heads down instead of up <laughs>
0: yeah i wonder how much of it is actually the size giving us the um the the long you know upload time i i guess also all the requests round trips of uh, seventy thousand files individual files um being yeah synced um that's also not helping i think both figures need to go down a bit i do wonder how that will be possible because as far as i can tell the number of files pretty much scales with the symbol so each symbol that you can click on has a representing file with the you know the metadata to populate the page the documentation page and i'm not sure how how um, much that's possible architecturally in doc c to bundle these up or group them somehow uh, you know move away from these being individual files in the file system but i i still i'm not sure there are um, 70,000 symbols in swift syntax i don't know there might well be but i suspect there's some some duplication happening in In the package overall that that hopefully can be reduced at some point
1: yeah but the good news is that it's now deployed
0: yeah exactly um we're currently only dealing with that one package for the moment due to the way we've we've onboarded and set our uh, processing thresholds but we'll subsequently lower this and onboard more packages because the, the process overall is is faster um for all packages and uh Uh, should make it smoother and easier um, and avoid any sort of difficulties with other packages that might run up against our internal because we also have a time budget for the build process and the upload process both together and if a build takes very long and then the the documentation stage comes after that it might actually be cut off by our time constraint on the whole build process so it'll certainly help to offload this to the to the lambda um, entirely soon yes right um that was the doc uploader news did we have anything else
1: um so kind of i I have um I have one more thing which I'd like to just briefly uh mention which I saw today and it's a new website called are <laughs> yeah I saw that one by Tim yeah so this is from Tim Condon um who is uh one of the uh vapor team members um and he's also on the swift server work group uh with apple and he 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 had a look at there's a rust site called are we web yet um uh, and this is a the the here's here's in terms of the swift version uh of that site and basically and i think i think we've needed something like this for a little while it's a website which just gives a bit of background information about Swift on the server. It doesn't try and teach you Swift on the server, although it does give you links to Swift on the server tutorials and and, um, various uh, other references that you can read. But it really just says, here are the main frameworks. Uh, We've got Vapor, Smoke, and Hammingbird. It says that Hammingbird is quite new. Vapor and Smoke uh, are production ready and mature. It talks about how the ORM that we have works and, or not even, not how it works, but just gives you a link to it, gives you places that you can go and find out a bit more. And and I think this has been missing from the kind of server-side Swift. In fact, I was writing something about it the other day for iOS Dev Weekly, and I actually changed what I was going to write because I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, bring myself to go and google all the names of the different <laughs> um uh, frameworks obviously i know vapor because we use vapor but and i i, I remembered hummingbird but like i for the life of me i couldn't remember smoke and then i maybe thought there was another one as well i think i thought amazon did one was one called perfect or something at one point but some of them have gone some of them like Kitura has has uh sadly uh i mean it's still it's still up and around but it's not really actively um uh, develops anymore um and so i thought this was website was worth uh uh, mentioning yeah really nice it's also got some good information on WebAssembly there as well
0: i am quite bullish on um on swift on the server um because i i enjoy it tremendously and i, I really hope that um this just raises awareness about what's possible and um especially now that async await is pretty much in all the frameworks it is it's, it's such a nice environment to develop in and i hope it, it gets picked up more it's um yeah, we've we've Been over this before i think pretty much everything is there that you might need it doesn't have necessarily the depth like you know the the number of packages implementing the same thing in multiple ways but there is something there for pretty much anything uh, everything you you might want to do server side so i I
1: think it's really great yeah and i think you're right to be um bullish on it for back-end services like an api back-end in swift is you know, the, the, you're going to have a great time uh, developing something like that with whatever framework you use. I think there is quite a lot of work still to do if it's to become a front-end web application platform as well. So, you know, obviously we're building um, a front-end application with Vapor, but it feels like it maybe has, there's more work to do on the front-end side of things than than the back-end. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's all we're heading down a path here and uh, we're heading in the right direction.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess in Swift as as a uh, language and ecosystem it's almost like the default is a, a JSON API backend and then a mobile app front end right so the front end yes. part is it's almost you know like slightly different if you ask people what's the front end back end situation in Swift they'd probably give that as the answer and not you know we immediately think of a web frontend.
1: Yeah, the frontend is the, is the iOS app or the Mac app.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. On the other hand, I, so I'm, I haven't actually done a whole lot of web frontend work. Um, I know that our setup is slightly unusual in that we're using an HTML DSL to actually render the pages. But there's, that's not the only way of doing it, right? There's the more common approach of using... Um, a templating language. Um, I think Mustache is is a very common word relief. So I wonder if if a lot of your concerns about web front end maturity would if it would actually look slightly different if that's what we had chosen.
1: Not so much. No. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah not so much because I think I think actually the generation of the HTML is is pretty nice actually with with what we're using with Plot and certainly i really have have grown to appreciate the fact that we can um manipulate units of what eventually becomes html as you know types and objects within within our swift code that's that the, there's there's a lot of power in that system the the bigger problem is slightly f- further towards the front end for me so in, in order to do kind of any real modern front end development you're going to need um Something like an a SAS compiler uh, and some kind of JavaScript dependency manager. You don't obviously need one, but um, but we do use one, and that kind of stuff is just completely separate from everything else that we do. And we've got it working like it's no problem. And we could even we could even spend some time making that more. Uh, automated by uh, leveraging some of the Swift package manager build tools and things like that. Yeah. We could potentially integrate that a little further. But at the moment, developing pure front-end stuff, I'm talking like CSS styling and JavaScript functionality in the browser, the development environment for that is is less than ideal because you kind of have to run your project through Xcode to get the server running and then load up your CSS and JavaScript editor and have the build process for the front end stuff running. And it's not even as simple as just adding the, the build step for the front end to the Xcode build process. Because that, what that would mean is that every time you changed a CSS value, you'd need to rerun the Xcode project, which is just, that's not really how, like I'm, I'm front end people are used to very, very smooth, um, uh, Workflows where you just save your CSS file, it compiles everything in the background and everything goes live. And that's what we have right now, but it's not that doesn't feel like a particularly um smooth process with uh Swift on the Service project right now.
0: Right, because you you sort of have a you know double approach. You need to build if you have source code changes, you need to build an Xcode. And if you have just, you know, like CSS changes, you need to right. have yeah. a file watcher or something that, that kicks that off separately. Yeah.
1: Exactly, and that file watcher is 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 instant and always works, and so that's really. I don't. I wouldn't want to lose that by putting the 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 front end process through Xcode because that's not going to have the file watcher and not going to have any of that kind of stuff. But at the moment, there is that quite big disconnect between have I changed HTML? Yeah. Or have i changed css or have i changed javascript and then i need to manually pick which bit of the system to run yeah. to make sure that my changes are live and it's fine you know it's not it's not a huge problem but it's certainly not as um it, it's kind of the is with a rough i would say it's the rough edge of, of where we are with swift on the server at the moment
0: well, you know what the solution is, right? We need a Swift uh, CSS and JavaScript DSL and a Mac Studio that runs it
1: really fast. <laughs> you know, I I I know that there are a couple of people working on CSS DSLs in Swift, and I, I, I don't particularly want to start writing CSS in Swift, honestly. <laughs> I think CSS is, or SAS is, is a perfectly fine uh, way to write uh, CSS. Um, but, but it would absolutely, for it to even be in with a chance of me considering it, it would need to be, it would need to solve that problem of I don't want to build and run to do new CSS.
0: <laughs> All right, there's a challenge. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, And with that said, shall we do some package recommendations? Yeah, let's do some packages. Okay, I am going to start us this week with a package from Gil Gonzalez. Um, called Swift Markdown UI. And it's, uh, it's been around for a couple of years, but there was a version two uh, release a couple of days ago. And uh, it's a complete rewrite, apparently. So it's rewrite from scratch with a, as as uh, Gil says, a ton of new features and improvement. And the one that caught my eye was GitHub flavored Markdown. So this is a native component for swift ui applications it's not um uh we're not dealing with the web here this is back in uh back in uh in in apple land and there are a lot of solutions both apple provided you know it can the the the, the standard uh frameworks can render markdown these days but there's a big difference between markdown and github flavored markdown we've run across this with the package index a few times yeah and having a a good quality GitHub flavored flavored Markdown renderer for your SwiftUI app feels like something that would be worth looking into.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I did see that pop up as well. Um, it also has a uh, documentation, um, hosted on the Swift Package Index. If I'm if I remember correctly, all the best packages
1: do. Sven. Yeah, <laughs> that's why we pick them, right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, honestly, um, I I that's not why I picked this one. In fact, I hadn't noticed it had the documentation until you just mentioned it then. But you know, if there are two packages and one of them has documentation hosted by us and one of them doesn't, you know, I can't, I can't say which one I'm gonna pick. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, no, it's it's I saw that and it's it's really great. The and and you're right. The the difference is quite remarkable. The Git uh, get flavored Markdown. I think one of the big things
1: is tables, right? That Git GitHub um, Markdown has. Yeah, tables. Yeah. Yeah. Um and things like auto lists and task lists and you know obviously you you may not need all those features but um but certainly the GitHub flavor markdown is in my experience a, a a good set of changes on top of standard markdown. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that's Swift Markdown UI. All
0: right. So my first package is called KVK Calendar by Sergei Kwiatkowski and this is a a UI component um like a calendar um, component and it offers what looks like really a complete calendar view drop-in. I mean, if you look at the screenshot in the package description, you, at first glance, you probably would think this is a screenshot of plain old calendar, you know, like the built-in app.
1: Yeah, it really does look like it.
0: It has everything, right? It has time zone support, um, light, dark mode, full support for for a calendar. If you need a calendar in your app um, and, and deal with that sort of display, this is the package to go for. Um, I did find interesting that it lists support for iOS, iPadOS, macOS, um, and Mac Catalyst. Um, yet our compatibility matrix actually only shows support for iOS and the actual little platform badge which is not ours this is like a manually set badge also only shows ios so i suspect this is a case where where we actually correctly i'd say find that it's only ios compatible for the moment because looking at the build errors they look to be genuine on the other platforms maybe in the past it was compatible with all platforms and is only ios compatible for the moment but even so um this this is a great package so if you're on ios this, this looks really interesting if you have um, a need for a calendar view, a KVK calendar by Sergei Kwiatkowski.
1: Yeah, it certainly looks uh, comprehensive uh, if that's what you're building. And obviously there's been, a lot of, there's been a lot of work done. I think there's also a standard kind of date picker type calendar control within SwiftUI these days. J- just to note as well that this uh, component is um, UI kit, not SwiftUI. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, that's worth pointing out. Uh, Which is just always worth mentioning. But this is—I'd encourage you, if you're listening to the podcast, just go and have a quick look at the screenshot that's that's uh, associated with this. It really does look like the uh, Apple Calendar app.
0: (laughs) Oh, interesting. Um, if you are a Swift UI user, fear not, because in the README further down, it actually has the
1: UI view
0: representable all spelled out, which looks like a drop in and then you you should
1: be good to go um to use it uh, from swift ui right yeah nice package there you go great my next one is called draftsman by Nayanda uh, Haberty, and draftsman is a layout builder based on auto layout but with a declarative approach so there have been lots and lots of DSLs around auto layout over the years, and certainly with SwiftUI coming along, auto layout is is very much a UI kit and app kit uh, technology which has not been taken forward into SwiftUI. The layout is in SwiftUI is, is handled in a completely different way, of course. And this is also not a new package. This has been around for a couple of years, uh, but again, there was a, uh, a a recent release ten days ago which got this package into my list of things that I wanted to just have, take a quick look at and I quite liked the syntax of this um uh, dSL so you can kind of say my view dot draftsman dot left equal to other dot right and then right dot equal to with a parent offset by this much and it reads quite nicely in terms of if you're wanting to do auto layout in code uh which i know a lot of people want to do then this seemed like a really quite a pleasant dsl to to start to to, to do that with nice and it caught my eye
0: all right my next package is called tart by cirrus labs um now this is a this is not a package um use as a dependency this is you know one of those packages that we have in index that is a executable um, developer tool um, which is open source and is obviously a swift package that you can build you probably would typically install it via homebrew and this caught my eye while i was researching ways to get a apple silicon github runner up and running because what this does this is a virtualization framework based tool that allows you to spin up uh, mac vms with a command very much like you do with docker commands so tart run and then image name and tart build and then you have know, a base image and, and some stuff and then you can create new images and this is the underlying mechanism the company cirrus labs which is a Apple Silicon-based CI provider, what they use to power their CI. So a lot of this tool is actually geared and it says so Mac and Linux VMs on Apple Silicon to use in CI and other automations. So what you can do is use this to build images that you use in CI and and by build, I mean, not just pull in a macOS 13.2 base image. You can also use um, Packer, which is a sort of... a Uh, automation tool to build os images to go further than just getting the base image in you can actually run then install steps afterwards uh, you know to configure the vm to install homebrew and xcode and all sort of sorts of stuff and have sort of a script that is run through to build that image and then you can even push that image to oci compatible compatible registries which are like docker registries so imagine you use docker to manage images and run containers effectively think of this replacing your docker in your command docker run docker build with tart and then you can do the same for macOS images i've played around with this just a little bit and built an image based of a um, ipsw file which are the files you can download with the you know the macOS um, installer files uh-huh. so if you use that as an input you can build one of those images and then spawn it and, and launch it from the command line and it brings up a you know like like you would um, expect um, when you run a virtual machine with one of the many tools that have spawned up recently based on virtualization framework um, yeah and i found that really interesting because this also has plugins to actually set up github action runner so it looks to me like this would be a really neat way to set up a self-hosted runner without all the custom setup that you would do is so you can actually bake all the configuration into a couple of setup files that you then run to create the image and then you manage the github runner spawning um, and push it to this um, mechanism rather than sort of setting up a you know a bare metal macros machine or a VM and you know sort of handcraft uh, the machine itself to run you can actually script all of this and then make it easily deployable across multiple machines with all the same setup so yeah
1: uh, it's called Tart by Cirrus Labs interesting yeah I hadn't come across this uh before but um I've just been taking a quick look at it while you've been uh, talking there and it's uh, it, it does look interesting
0: Oh, and I should add, I read this out. This is not just backwards machines. You can use the same mechanism to build Linux VMs. And obviously, Packer is, is multi-platform. So with Packer, you can create images for both, you know, many, many different OSs. One, one other note, the thing that I want you to mention, it's really interesting how many open source virtualization solutions have popped up based on virtualization framework. Yeah. I find that quite remarkable. So I've been using, what's it called, virtual... Buddy, I believe. Yes, Virtual Body by Guilherme Arambo, which is a little app wrapper he wrote that wraps virtualization framework, which does exac- exactly the same thing, really. You can, you can build your own image, you can run it. It's a little markup that does pretty much what Parallels and um, VMware Fusion allow you to do as well and this this has been around for a while, and it's based on virtualization framework. so virtualization framework is really the thing that does all the heavy lifting of building the v M and managing the v m and But many people have have written these wrappers and and sort of innovated on top of it to build these docker like things or vmware like things to manage vms and I find that really interesting, and i'm I'm really curious where this will lead in the future to to easily and very commonly um run vms more on macros than
1: we used to well i'm also curious whether what apple did with the development of that virtualization framework is the end of their story (laughs) with it you know yeah Yeah. are, are they happy to be the framework vendor and let other people build on top of it or is this is this step one in a in a plan from Apple to produce either something that just runs VMs like like all these other apps that have popped up? Or is there something actually a little more fundamental uh, in the I
0: Every time in June, every year in June, this TARD thing looks exactly what I would imagine as a dev tool by Apple. I mean, I haven't played around with this enough. but this this really seems to do the thing that i really like about docker where you can build your images and then rely on them to be immutable and always there and you just you know you bring them up have them do their thing and then you know they go away again and it's there's no there's no um there's no magic machine that you set up once and then you always worry that might drift from the original config um, this is this is the great thing about Docker because you, yes. you never have these stick around long. You always make sure that everything you want happens in the base image, and and I I think this is really the thing
1: that that does this for macOS. Uh, I, I'd be curious to play around with this more. Right. Uh, so my last package is a testament to um, writing interesting release notes because. Um, one of the things that we put in our RSS feed was not only the link to the package, um, page on package index, uh, but also whatever release notes that were, were, were entered into, uh, GitHub. And as I was, as I was scrolling past, uh, all the release notes, uh, as I was scanning the packages for this, uh, podcast, I came across this release note. And I'm, I'm going to say the release note before I even tell you what the package is. This release includes a complete refactor. Now it's just better. <laughs> and, and I read that and I thought, well, I have to now see what this uh, what this package is. And it's a package called uh, SunKit. The organization that's produced it is SunLit. Uh, but as I can see by our new author support, the person uh, who has uh, written this is Nicholas Mariniello. And it's a package that I am almost certainly never going to use uh, because what it does is it uses maths and trigonometry to compute all sorts of information about where the sun is relative to wherever you are. So, for example, it can calculate uh, first light and last light, sunrise, sunset, golden hour time, um, total daylight duration, total night duration, all sorts of things like that. It's a package which is extracted from the app, which is Sunlit, um, which is an app on the App Store. And honestly i don't I don't really have a lot to say about this package. It feels like it does exactly what it says it's going to do, but I just I love that release note. I thought that release note was great, and that made it worth a mention. That's
0: great. yeah, i I can also imagine this is the package you want when you actually have to deal with this because
1: this must be super fiddly. Right, who wants to write those calculations, right? nice
0: all right my last one is called preview resizable and it is by juan duat or juan duat i'm not sure i think it's um personally it's based in, in barcelona so that might be catalonian which i don't know how to pronounce this is a really interesting package um because what it does is makes your swift ui previews resizable and that might sound odd at first because you know you you set these things up and you give them you typically give them a frame or something um and then they're there or or i think it has a default as well but the way this works is it actually is it embeds your preview in a in a larger view and then gives it a resize handle so you can actually um then you know within obviously you can't extend it out of out of the size of your uh, initial view but you can make it smaller so it's this is really nice when you um i suppose when you have a view and just might want to test a lot of you know individual sizes and you you can't really or you don't want to litter your preview with five six ten twenty individual individually resized yeah um previews so i thought that was a really neat idea to to make this possible um and to give you something to play around because you know the other option obviously is to to run it and a simulator but then you're back to the slower turnaround and um uh, this this makes use of swift uh,
1: previews yes i've not seen people use or reviews the uh, interactive element of swift previews like this before uh, so smart little yeah. idea
0: oh and and one other thing i wanted to mention i saw this in the readme further down so there is um obviously in order to use this you need to import the package wherever you defined your, um, previews, right? You need to import preview resizable and then, um, there's an an additional modifier on your view available, um, dot preview resizable. And when you call that, it makes your preview resizable. Um, but there's a little trick to avoid having to import preview resizable everywhere. And that is if you embed somewhere within your module the there's an un, uh, underscore exported attribute for import uh, and what that does is it pulls in all the public api of a package that we're referencing and re-exports its symbols as if they were declared in your module and that then makes obviously everything available which means you don't have to import it again in your module right because everything in your module is available to your uh-huh. source code without uh, additional imports right and that was actually the first time I sat down and thought about how that what that underscore exported actually means. I'd seen this a couple of times before, but I never actually realized what it does, and I found that quite interesting. Um, that it's it's sort of this this is the first time I've I've seen this being sort of advertised as a as a useful little thing you might do. There is a good tip there to put it in uh, if debug uh, guards, so you you don't compile this into your actual product because then you would obviously. Uh, import all those symbols there which is probably not a huge deal but you know something you would want to yes avoid
1: so yeah there you go um preview resizable by Juan Duat great well uh, that's uh, that's all the packages I think we have for today so uh, should we wrap it up there yeah let's wrap it up thanks for listening and thanks again just to to echo back to both our corporate sponsors, um, Stream and Emerge, and for everybody who supports us on GitHub, it really does uh, make all the difference. So thank you so much. And we will be back in a couple of weeks. Yeah, see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.